So as I mentioned this morning already, that this is the first Sunday of, of Advent. Uh, or sorry, Advent, <laughs> Lent. First Sunday of Lent. And I know oftentimes when we hear the word Lent, we hear uh, or we remember people giving up things for Lent. Uh, sometimes people give up coffee or chocolate, you know, kind of minor inconveniences. But in the beginning, Lent was much more than that. It was a season of preparation, a season of discipleship. Oftentimes people that wanted to be baptized at Easter, they would go through this whole process, uh, a strict, a strenuous discipleship program to learn what it means to follow Jesus before they'd be baptized at Easter. And so for us, uh, Lent is a time of drawing closer to God. And I thought, what better way to do that than by listening and by walking alongside John and the churches in Revelation? And over this last month, while Tracy and I have been in Vancouver, I've been studying Revelation, studying it each day. <clears throat> and, and I have to say, even after that, like I am just beginning to understand uh, the depth of Revelation. But one thing I have realized in my study is that Revelation gives us a new set of glasses to see the world. And we all have glasses, whether we are actually wearing glasses or not. We all see the world a different way, or all see the world in a particular way. And when we start reading Revelation, we start seeing a bit differently. And I think that's exactly what Jesus intended. That's why he spoke to John through visions. Why he spoke and gave John these visions and then told him to share these with the churches. It's interesting, as I've been reading, one of, my, um, one of the <clears throat> commentators I've been reading is a former professor of mine who has been pastor at First Baptist in Vancouver for years and been a pastor for, um, I think, 20 to 30 years now, maybe 40 years. And uh, Daryl Johnson, he was talking about how Revelation helps us see our current moment in light of the future reality. And the future reality is Jesus is coming and he's going to win. But he said also, too, that Revelation helps us see the present reality, or sorry, the present moment in light of the current reality, that Jesus is Lord, and he's already won. So as I've been thinking about Revelation, and I've been thinking and reading uh, through it and listening to uh, God's word, especially this week, Jesus' word to the church in Ephesus, I've been thinking about our situation in the world that we live in right now. I think about the ways, the, the pressure that Ephesus was facing. See, in Ephesus, they had all sorts of idolatries. They had a huge temple to the goddess Artemis. They had temples to the, to the emperor. They had trade guilds that all had their uh, uh, patron gods. So there was lots of pressure from many angles to the church to compromise to follow Jesus on Sunday, but then to show up at these other pagan rituals to fit in. There was tons of pressure. And I started thinking about the, own pressure, the, the pressures that we face today as God's people and the culture around us, the, the ways that we feel pressure from our society to fit in, to think this way, to approve of this, to disprove of that. It's interesting, the, the word in Revelation that's often used for this pressure is thlipsis, which uh, is the Greek word we often translate or is in translated in Revelation as, as tribulation. But as you read it, and it's used throughout the New Testament and a few other places, and it talks about this, it gets at this pressure between two kingdoms clashing, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God and the ways of the world. 
And the two, like great armies, coming and clashing right at that point, right at the point where they collide, is phlipsis, that pressure. And we as the people of God live in that point. That pressure from our society to try and fit in, to not say that or not think that or to not do that, or that God is unreasonable, or like Rudy, like even you were just saying, like a God who is jealous, that doesn't fit with a human idea of what God should be like. If we were going to create God in our own image, we wouldn't let him be jealous. And yet God is a jealous God. God's ways are not our ways. And we live at that point of tension. I wonder, and I know, many of you know what I'm talking about. It's funny, we live in a time where things that a generation ago were right are now called wrong, and things that are wrong are now called right. Things are changing. And as our culture moves further and further away from God's kingdom, it gets harder and harder for us to stand in between. Many of you know what I'm talking about. So I thought, what better place to begin than by listening to John, to hearing the visions that he saw, and walking alongside the churches as he reported these visions to the churches. And I keep remembering Daryl's words as we see the present moment in light of the future reality that Jesus is coming and he's going to win. And we see the present moment in light of the current reality that Jesus is Lord and he's already won. So with that in mind, let's come, let's, if you would, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. There's also this insert in your bulletin if you would like to look there. Before I read, can we pray together that we would hear God's word? Father in heaven, Lord Jesus Christ and Holy Spirit, we come before you and we ask for your help. Holy Spirit, as we hear your word again this morning, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would guide us, that you would help us to understand it rightly. Lord, that you would use it to transform our lives, to make us more like Jesus. Lord Jesus, we pray this in your mighty name. Amen. So read with me. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars, in his right hand, and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now I want to say one thing before we begin. For those of you who love to hear the background of Scripture, this is going to be a great Sunday for you. (laughs) For those of you who could kind of care less, ask you to hold on. It's going to be worth it. So listen. So Jesus begins speaking and speaks to John. And it's important for us to start understanding John who? John, I believe it's the disciple of Jesus. 
who is now probably in his mid-80s and has been pastor of the church in Ephesus, but has since been exiled to an island called Patmos just off the western edge of modern-day Turkey. So he had been exiled to Patmos, and on Patmos they had rock quarries where they would send people to work in prison camps. So this 85-year-old man sent to an island to work there until he dies. Now why is he sent there? Why is this elderly man, who's a pastor and gentle, why is he sent here? We don't know for certain, but I suspect it's something along the lines that he refused to worship the emperor. See, in that time, emperors would try to consolidate their power. They would try to control people by claiming that they were gods. Domitian, the, the emperor at that time, actually took the title for himself, humbly of course, took the title for himself, Domine and Deus, Lord and God. How does that fit with us as Christians, right? We only have one Lord, one God. And it was... Uh, Scholar, historians have found out that uh, in around 92 AD, he actually killed 40,000 Christians or had them executed because they refused to worship him as God. He was horribly insecure and paranoid about being emperor. And so if you refuse to worship him, refuse to pay homage to him and your allegiance to him, you'd be imprisoned. More likely, you'd be executed, but very definitely, you'd be persecuted. And so here's John, this pastor, this elderly pastor of this church, on an island, exiled, hard labor. And on the Lord's day, Jesus visits him and he sees visions. A vision of the future reality that would shape his present situation. And a future of the current reality that would shape his present reality. So John sees these visions and Jesus tells him to write them down and send them to the church's of Asia Minor. And it's interesting because it says he sends it to the angels of the church. It says Jesus says, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And it's interesting, I mean, this is one thing I found as I've studied Revelation, is there's about 20 different ideas at every, at every part of, of Revelation, different scholars, different ideas. But as I read Revelation so far, the angels are always angels. <laughs> So I don't think this is a symbolic of something else. I think it's actually an angel of the church. Which is interesting when you start thinking about it as angel representatives for the churches of God. Makes me start thinking about the angel of this church and what they are like. So John writes this letter to an angel of the church. And he writes it to the angel of church in Ephesus. Now, I don't know how often you guys study ancient Ephesus, but it's been pretty enlightening for me to read about it. Ephesus is one of the four great cities of the Roman Empire. You had Rome, Alexandria, Syrian Antioch, and Ephesus. To kind of compare it to Canada, I think it would be something like the Vancouver of the ancient world. This, this seaport, so had lots of trade, lots of ships coming and going, lots of trade routes that converged at Ephesus. So you had all this trade, lots of money, ideas and religions, religions all coalescing at this one spot at Ephesus. There was lots of money there. It was an important city. 
Lots of important people lived there, or at least they thought they were important. But Ephesus was also known for its religious life or idolatries. Ephesus had an enormous temple to the goddess Artemis, who was the goddess of the hunt and of fertility. Some of the ancient stone carvings they found of Artemis, she's a woman with naked breasts, but there's about 20 or 30 breasts to kind of symbolize her, her um, uh, vitality, to symbolize um, the, that she would help you with fertility. So they had this, this goddess, and this temple was gigantic. So in the ancient world, I mean, with their building practices, it was the size of two football fields. It had a hundred 55-foot pillars in it. Enormous structure. It was estimated that there were a thousand priests and priestesses. Many of those priestesses were also temple prostitutes. That was part of the worship of Artemis. But it was also, not only was it a big religious thing, but it was also big business. Catch a glimpse of this if you read Acts chapter 19. When Demetrius, a tradesman in Ephesus, incites a riot to throw Paul out because so many people are becoming Christians that their business is dropping because they make idols, hand-carved idols of Artemis. Because so many people are becoming Christian, they stop buying these idols, and Demetrius is upset. It's big business. But that, wasn't all, that was the only god that they worshipped. See, in Greek, it was kind of the more gods, the better. Why limit ourselves to just one? They also worshipped the emperor as god. And that was part of the Roman system after Caesar Augustus. It was a part of a way of consolidating power. What better way to have people or make sure people agree with you is if you say that you are God and you make them confirm it. So not only did the emperor claim divinity for himself, but he would honor those who honored him. It was this reciprocity or this cycle. So the the emperor would say, I am God and I am king. And then you'd have these cities that would basically fight, like stumble over each other trying to say that he was God. So they would gain favor from the emperor. They would build these temples. They would make sure all their citizens worshipped him. So they would receive favor from the emperor. In a way, manipulating, manipulating his insecurity. And so you have these cities where there's lots of pressure to be a good city, a quote-unquote faithful city, a city where we faithfully worship the emperor. There was lots of pressure throughout Ephesus to worship the emperor. Not only were these major temples, but there was also trade guilds. You see an example of this in Acts 19 as well. Demetrius, he doesn't call the Ephesian police. He doesn't call the Roman guard. He calls his fellow tradesmen a trade guild something maybe like a modern-day union with some differences, but a group of tradesmen who all kind of work together. And they start a riot against Paul. Well, see, these trade guilds, there's actually more to it than just uh, a group of, of tradesmen who work together. They would have annual feasts as well as a way to sort of consolidate or to make sure everybody was on the same page, make sure we're still together. And part of these feasts, they would often have a patron god a patron god maybe of the carpenter's guild and a different patron god of the of the, the potter's guild. And so you go to these meals and part of it was paying homage, maybe offering incense or eating uh, idol meat or sacrificed meat. 
as a way to honor these gods so that your guild or your trade would be prosperous in the next year. You can imagine that a Christian, what this would mean for them. No longer could you go to these meals. No longer would you eat the idle meat. No longer would you sleep with the temple prostitutes. And so more and more there was pressure. Less and less, or more and more did the, was the culture around them intolerant of their faith. It's interesting, in the ancient world, they actually called Christians atheists because they wouldn't worship the gods. So this is the religious pressure in Ephesus. Idolatry encircles every part of your life. There's pressure to, to uh, worship Artemis because everyone around them is. There's pressure to worship the emperor, and not just pressure like, you know, you're not going to be one of us if you're not, but actually we're going to report you to the authorities and they're going to execute you if you don't. That's pressure. And part of the trade guilds, even if you could navigate your way through um, the, the uh, emperor's uh, police and all that stuff to try and get you for not worshiping the emperor, your trade guild would ostracize you if you didn't come to the trade, to the trade dinners or to the, to the temple dinners. So it affected your livelihood, the ways that you even fed your family. So to follow Jesus meant a complete change of life. And it meant pressure from every place. Idolatry encircled life in Ephesus. This is the situation to which Jesus gives a vision to John, and then John passes it on through letters to the churches in Asia Minor, beginning with the church in Ephesus. So it's into this situation that Jesus says, let's read it together. It's actually the first verse. 2 1 says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I'm going to give you the, or the, the end result of this. This is saying that Jesus is with his church. It's a, it's a symbolic way of saying that Christ is not far off not sitting somewhere far away in heaven, but right in the midst of the church. That's also an important part for us to talk a little bit about how we read Revelation. It's interesting because Revelation was actually revealed to John in visions that were symbolic. And in Revelation, the first verse of the book, it talks about John and, and receiving these visions. And it uses this word, this Greek word, semino. And it's a word that in Greek means to signal. So when Jesus was uh, doing signs and wonders, he did semea and wonders. He did signs and wonders revealing the kingdom of God. So, the, so Jesus is revealing to John through symbols, which is kind of counterintuitive because we're taught to read Scripture, most of the rest of the places, very literally. Like an example, Jesus' cross, his crucifixion and his resurrection. I read those very literally that they actually happened. That Jesus, that his cross wasn't a metaphor for something else. That his resurrection wasn't just symbolic, it actually happened. I believe that's the good way to read most of Scripture. But when we come to Revelation, it gets flipped on its head. And actually, we're meant to read symbolically Revelation. Not that it doesn't have meaning, don't get me wrong. And I think in our culture, we tend to, to take symbol and say that, oh, it's just kind of, Fairy tales, that's not what I'm saying. But they are symbols. And because I read John literally in verse 1, 
I read Revelation figuratively or symbolically. We have some more questions on that. We can talk some more. It's a little bit more <laughs> to show the verse and to talk about it. But there's a great example of it. Uh, in uh, Revelation 1, at the end of chapter 1, Jesus explains what these stars and what these lampstands are. He says that these seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. He says that these lampstands, these seven lampstands, are the seven churches that he's writing to. So stars are angels, lampstands are churches. And it's important to see that because Jesus says he's holding these stars in his right, sorry, in his right hand. He's saying, I'm holding on to them. They're not scattered all over. I'm holding on to them with my right hand. I'm caring for your church. And he's not somewhere far off. He's standing in the middle, walking in the middle of the lampstands, the churches. Jesus is present with his church. And as I was reading, I was um, reading too about the way that the, the, the priests of the temple would walk and they would, they would maintain or they would keep, make sure that all the lampstands were burning properly. They would trim this lampstand or this lamp and then they would relight this one, making sure that everything was burning and lighting the temple. I see Jesus taking the same care with the lampstands of the churches, right in the middle of the churches, maintaining them, caring for them, And because he's right in the middle of them, he can honestly say, I know your works. I know what's going on. I know what's happening around you. I know what's happening in your church. I know what's happening in the culture around you. I know. And he can say that with all integrity, with all honesty. So he says to the church, I know your works. I know the hard labor that you've faced. I know of your perseverance. I know that you can't bear those false teachers who have come and tried to to lead you astray. It begins with a pretty good commendation. There's a lot going right in Ephesus. But then he says, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love or forsaken your first love. And it's interesting, this is another one of those places where depending on who you read, if you read ten different people on what that first love is, you could get ten different answers. But many of them seem to come around three possibilities. One, that Jesus is saying your first love, you've left your first love, which is your love for one another, your love for the church. I was reading one New Testament scholar who said that you've lost your first love, which is your love for mission, your love to be a, a lampstand that sheds light to the world around you. But the one that makes most sense to me, and I think most people who are reading Revelation and studying it are are realizing that John, or are coming to the conclusion that John is talking about their love for Jesus. And that's where I land as well. That Jesus is saying, you have lost your first love for me. But the thing is, the first love, if Jesus is our first love, those, those other things are connected. Our love for one another is connected to our love of Jesus. Our love for mission and for telling others about him is connected to our love for him. So by saying that, I'm not saying that those other things aren't maybe a part of it, but that Jesus is saying, church, you've lost your love for me. I think about when I first became a follower of Jesus, like really devoted my life to him when I was in my 20s. Man, 
I had this grin on my face all the time. I remember starting Bible studies like in an office or a, a conference room in the company that I worked. I remember meeting and like just going to the gym and like started sitting down and talking with guys and becoming friends with them so I could talk with them about Jesus. I remember one time uh, I was driving home from Spokane to Post Falls, Idaho, and there was a guy who was hitchhiking. Um, he kind of looked like a guy you'd pick up in the Kootenays, which in Spokane, like the sort of person you wouldn't pick up. And he picked him up and he said, so, you know, blah, blah, where are you going? I was, well, actually, I'm trying to get up to Sandpoint to visit a friend, so about two and a half hours away. And I said, oh, great, I'll take you. And I spent the next two and a half hours trying to convert him to Christianity. <laughs> and I think he's probably sat, I think he probably caught a few rides with Christians because he had lots of uh, answers and questions for me, so. But I was happy to do it. Drive almost five hours out of my way just to give the guy a ride. I remember all the conversations. I couldn't, like, everybody would talk to me. I'm, I imagine my friends probably got tired of <laughs> Jason. Here he goes again talking about Jesus and what he's done in his life. But since then, there have been ups and downs. There have been times when I am amazed again at God's love for us. And then there are times, honestly, God forgive me when I totally take it for granted. When I forsake my first love. How many of you know what that's like or can say the same? You remember when you first started following Jesus, when you first realized the sacrifice that he made, the life, this new life that he'd given you, this reconciliation with God. And then a few years later, that love was sort of gone or at least dimmed a bit. I can't help but wonder if maybe in the church in Ephesus, something like that was happening there too. Not just among one or two people, but kind of collectively in the church. Maybe, uh, was it maybe 40 years before that, Paul had visited Ephesus and started to plant the church there. And if you read Acts 19, it sounds like lots of people were coming to faith. So much so that local business people who had a business based on the, on the, the goddess Artemis, they were like ready to, they did, they had a riot because they were losing so much business. Can you imagine? Well, I think many of you know what that's like to start a church. To see people's lives transformed. The excitement, the, the fun, the, the chaos of it. People's lives being changed. And then the next generation. Paul's, or sorry, John's writing to the second generation. Maybe some of them grew up in that church. And they didn't remember what it was like to be pagan. They don't remember what it was like to have to go to those temples and worship there or to be afraid because you never knew which God was going to zap you this week. And so maybe they took it for granted. I hear Jesus speaking to this church, not from the outside, not from way far away, but standing right in the middle of the lampstands, holding the angels of the church in his right hand. And he says to them, remember, repent, and return. This is grace. And I know like we're used to, or oftentimes our society, like, like Rudy, I keep thinking about what you're talking, it's probably Oprah, right? <laughs> he says that. Um, 
You know, our society can't imagine a God that would love, but also that would be just and righteous and bring judgment. We live in a society where people want all the love and the grace, but they don't want to believe in any sort of judgment, any sort of righteousness. But there's grace in this story. Jesus gives them a way. He tells them how to get back on track. And he says, remember. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Remember what it's like when this church was brand new. And by church, at that time, they probably didn't mean a building. They meant the people. Remember when this group of people was brand new. Remember your zeal and your your joy and the passion you had. Remember when, when people were coming left and right to follow Jesus. When people were seeing your lives and wanting to live the same. Remember what that was like when you saw people who their lives were an absolute mess and then they started following Jesus and slowly, sometimes quickly, things began to work out and their lives began to change and they had this joy and this hope. Remember what that was like. And then repent. Says, ask God for forgiveness. And I know that repentance and bristling, man, that is like opposite of what our culture is right now. And our culture hates to admit it's wrong. That's why I think part of why, just so that people don't fight, they just said, well, everybody's idea is, is good. Every idea is true. That we won't have to argue about who's right or who's wrong. We can just say, well, your idea is your idea and my idea is mine. Hate to repent. Hate to be wrong. Hate to ask forgiveness. It takes humility. It takes humility to ask for forgiveness. What I feel God calling in me as I've been studying Revelation, as I've been reading Ephesus this last week, studying it, Lord Jesus, please forgive me for the times that I have forsaken my first love. Lord, forgive me even now if you're not my first love. Help me to return. Help me to remember what it was like. Please forgive me. And then Jesus says, repent. And then he says, return. Do the things you did at the first. The devotion. Remember when you used to sit down and read the Bible because you couldn't put it down? Remember when it wasn't a drudgery to read a devotion? Remember when you used to love to sit down and pray? Ask God to guide every little aspect of your life. Remember what it was like and go back to the time when you used to serve people with joy and they saw your joy in serving them and they wanted a piece of it. They wanted something like that. And so they'd start talking with you about faith. Remember how good it was. Ask the Lord for his forgiveness and then return and do those things again. And then Jesus gives them this warning and this promise. He says, if you don't repent, I will come, or actually, I am coming. And I will remove your lampstand from its place. And I don't think he was talking about a building. I think he was talking about the church, the people. I'll remove the people of this church from their place. But to those who do overcome, to those who do overcome and who do repent, and who are faithful and who do remember and do the things they did at the first, I will give to them the, the pleasure, the, the honor of eating from the tree of life. 
Now, Tree of Life, I mean, this is one of the things that's, that's, that's interesting, that's for me has been complicated of Revelation, is Tree of Life, what does that mean? It's referring back to the Tree of Life in Genesis 2. When God created a garden in Hebrew, Gan Eden. This amazing place, this paradise place, where God and humanity walked together. There was no separation, there was no sin. And this tree provided life. There was no death. There was no pain. There was no disability. Jesus is saying, repent, return to me, and you will eat from that tree in God's paradise. And that's the Hebrew way of saying in heaven, the words that we would use now. Not just heaven up in the sky, but heaven up in the sky until it returns to earth again one day. And we dwell with God. So as we move into this season of Lent, the season of intense discipleship, of training, of preparation for Easter, of preparation for the Lord's resurrection, I pray that we would walk alongside John and the church of Ephesus, that we would hear his words, his call, don't forget your first love. And if you have, remember what it was like and repent, return to him. Turn around and begin following him again and do the things you did at the first. I pray that we hear this and that it grows our faith in Christ. Amen.